Psalm uh, chapter 66 is where we'll be this evening. And uh, I cherish um, what we kind of looked at as I studied this psalm. It was such a sweet thing um, because it, it provoked a couple of things in me. First of all, I kind of had one of those days that's a little rough. Um, you know what I mean? Like really nothing in particular went wrong. It was just kind of a heavy day. And uh, what I discovered was as I was preparing for this, I was reminded about uh, in this psalm uh, of this phrase. It's such a, a fantastic phrase. Uh, but you see it in uh, Psalm 66, verse 3. It says this, Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Um, and, and it was really just a fantastic psalm for me to meditate on as I kind of went through a little bit of a heavier day, being reminded of the great deeds that God has indeed done. Um, and really, when we think about the deeds that God has done, it should provoke a response, right? Anytime, uh, anytime we meditate on the person of God, the work of God, uh, maybe that be the broad spectrum of what he's done in redemptive history, how he's saved, how we look at the cross and celebrate Christ. Even we look all the way back to the Old Testament, we look at places like the Exodus, which we'll talk a little bit about tonight. It's meant to provoke a response in us. And so really what I want to do this evening is walk through this psalm and then go back um, to what uh, the psalmist here is encouraging us to do. Because the encouragement is this, shout to joy to God all the earth, sing the glory of his name, give to him glorious praise. Now, we can all do that on top of our head. There should be things in our life that we can respond to God and say, look, we have ample reason to praise the Lord for what he's done in our life. Whether that be something personal that's happened today or something that's happened throughout your life, perhaps it's your testimony. But what I want to really consider this evening is how we respond to Revelation. Because worship is meant to be a response to Revelation. It's meant to be a response to some truth. Um, I've mentioned actually in this Bible study before that um, every so often, uh, Pastor Wade will preach on something on Sunday morning, and that in the hymn that we sing, an invitation is in some type of uh, in a, an alignment with that message. And you almost hear the congregation sing a bit louder. But there's some celebration, like there's been re- there's been revelation through God's word. We've seen uh, what what God has laid out for us in the scriptures, and our hearts are are filled with the scriptures, filled with the word, and we're just celebrating Christ and what He's accomplished for us. And you really do hear the saints sing a little louder. And it's a blessing. But far too often, um, we find ourselves singing things and we find ourselves going through emotions without really stopping to meditate on, you know, what, why am I doing this? Why am I, why am I praising the Lord? We have ample reason to do that. But it's such a beautiful thing to say, God has done a great work. And as we come to the scriptures, it always gives us reason to pour out praise. It doesn't matter, matter whether you find yourself in Leviticus or you're looking at uh, in Deuteronomy and you're reading through Um, just this this sermon that Moses gives out, or whether you're looking at just a a genealogy. The genealogies have purposes in the Scripture, and they're meant to reveal something to you. And as we study those, it's meant to provoke a response within the human heart. Uh, One of the beauties of the Scriptures is they are alive and active, that they're doing something in you. And so as we come to this psalm, we're going to consider some of the deeds of God. And my prayer is that after all is said and done, we have ample reason to respond in the way the psalmist lays out in verse 1, to shout, for joy to God all the earth, seeing the glory of his name. That um, as we consider our Sunday morning services, or whether it be you driving in your car, as you're singing um, and praising the Lord, you have something to meditate on, and that would provoke you to a deeper praise. So with that being said, let's dive into Psalm chapter, I mean, Psalm chapter 66. So we'll read it, and then we'll go back through and begin to break it down. So Psalm chapter 66 says this. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Shout to God, how awesome are your deeds. 
So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God. And I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, as we come to the scriptures, Lord, we delight that you have chosen to reveal yourself in your word. Um, God, that as the psalmist wrote, it was meant uh, for them, as they read it, and Lord, it's meant for us now. But as we come to the scriptures, your desire is to sanctify us in them. Lord, we hear your prayer in John 17, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. And so we come knowing that uh, Christ even has prayed over this evening as we come to your word, that you will indeed sanctify us through it. Lord, we claim promises that we find in Isaiah that your word will never return void, that it will always accomplish its purpose. And so we rejoice knowing that we come confidently. Lord, that you are a God who desires to speak to us. Or that you are a God that person is personal and draws near. And Lord, as we meditate upon your deeds, may we leave this place proclaiming how awesome are your deeds. And so, Father, would you use a fallen man to proclaim an infallible word? And so, Father, we ask you now to accompany the preaching of your word with the power of your spirit. And Lord, we rest comfortably in your promises that you uh, delight to reveal yourself to your saints. Uh, it is in the name of Christ and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. Um, so as we come uh, to the text, there's a couple of major points we want to look at. So he kind of breaks down the deeds of God and how he almost wants you to view them. And so the very first thing you see is him say, come and see. Notice in verse 5, we're going to jump back up to verse 1, 2, 3, and 4 toward the end. So the first thing we're going to do is meditate on the deeds, what they actually are. And so you see him proclaim, come and see. There's this invitation uh, of, of the psalmist. I want you to come. I want you to look at what God has done. And he begins to meditate on the deeds of God, in particularly in his deliverance. Um, I think we can all relate to this. Really, when we begin to think about what God has done for us, almost immediately our thoughts should find, our, should find their way back to the cross of Christ. As we begin to consider the works of God in our individual lives, the first place that we can see that begin is in his justification, as he saves us, as he delivers us out of slavery. And so the way the psalmist does that here is he begins to consider the way that God has delivered Israel. So look at verse 5. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. So the first thing I want you to see see here is he delivers his people from slavery. Now all of us are familiar with the story. Um, We find uh, Israel uh, in uh, the land of Egypt being 
slaves. They are captive there and they're serving Pharaoh. But what we find also is God begins to do a great work. He sets aside Moses. Moses comes in as uh, one bearing uh, the, the blessing of God to go and deliver the people. And so he comes in and he brings all sorts of different plagues along with him. And then we find Pharaoh, ultimately, after the killing of his firstborn son, say, get out. I mean, I want you to, and we can all relate to that, I'm sure. As God begins to bring judgment on the nation, he also delivers Israel. And I love the way that God deals in history. One of the things that we find is God begins to cast judgment over all the gods of Israel. Not a single god of Israel stood after God sent the plague. Every single one, God began to claim, creation is mine. I do with it what I please, whether it be the waters, the dry ground, or the heavens. They're mine. Whatever God you may assume that you serve, rest assured that I am the true authority. So he reveals his power and authority in Egypt. Almost, you can imagine the Israelites, as they begin to watch these plagues, almost stand a little bit more confidently as they're even in slavery. Like, your gods fall before mine. They have that confidence. But then, as we look even further, we see that he delivers his people to the point where he brings them to this place, a really interesting place. They find themselves back up to a sea. I mean, this is a place of great trial. I want you to understand that this is not a moment where the Israelites were resting more comfortably in the power of the God. Even though they had seen all the great signs and wonders, even though they watched him turn uh, the, the Nile to blood, they don't really have great confidence in this moment, foolish as it may seem. And they're backed up, and the, and the Egyptian army is coming to claim what is theirs, they believe. They're coming to get all that was plundered from them, the plunder that God promised Israel. And they're coming to essentially, they're not really interested in capturing them again. They're wiping them out. We're done with these guys. But instead we see this. God shows up and says, I'm going to part the Red Sea here. I'm going I'm to do something great and powerful, and it's going to be something that's memorable. Even to the point that all the way into the New Testament, this is still the major sign that Paul uses to demonstrate redemption and rescue, even in the New Testament. He likens it to Christ in the gospel. And I want you to notice this. Both of the things that uh, the psalmist here points out for them to remember as we come and see these great deeds of God is a parting of the waters, a crossing through something that you should never be able to cross through. Not a single chance that Israel has of their own accord. What are they going to swim? They're going to swim with millions of people across and and hope that everyone gets past it. And they still have the issue, but the Pharaoh, I mean, Pharaoh and the, and the Egyptians still want to wipe them out, and they're just going to give? No. And one of the beautiful things we find in this passage is in the deliverance that God has for his people, he also crushes the enemy. I mean, it absolutely rids them of all oppression from the Egyptians. No Egyptians going after the Israelites anymore. They're done with that. They've seen the strength of the God of Israel, and they're no longer trying to pursue them any longer. And so what we find is this. At when this invitation is, come and see how God delivers. Now, uh, it's really important that we know here that the deliverance that we see in the days of Israel and Egypt is just a minor picture of the deliverance that we have in Christ. Now, this is really, really important. I want you to understand this. Any, any hope, any, any reason that the psalmist here had to write, come and see what God has done, we have tenfold. We have an infinite more reason to say, come and see what God has done. Because they were not just delivered, uh, we're not just delivered from some foe that comes in and desires to enslave us and keep us down for just a lifetime. Instead, we are delivered from one that desires our life, not just here, but eternally. One that desires our death. And I mean, not, not the weak form of death that we use here. We use death like a cease to be, but that's not actually what it means. Death is separation. Um, when we think about a physical death, it's separation body from soul. But true death, true death is separation soul from soul. The Father. 
And when we say, come and see what God has done, we proclaim, we have a God who has delivered us from slavery. He has crushed our foe. I love 1 Corinthians 15. I was walking through it with a young man today, and it was fun watching as he realized that death is no foe for us. It has no snare for the power of death is in sin. And sin's been conquered. It's been done away with for the saints. I love what Colossians 1, Colossians 2 says. He canceled the record of our debt, setting it aside and nailing it to the cross. There's no sin to have hold on you. And, and, and God has, uh, thankfully, has created a, the means in the gospel that says that not a single, um, that, that every single one of the attributes secures your salvation. Do you think that God can bring up uh, your sin in the future? No, he's dealt with it in Christ, and to do so would be to deny his own justice. And he cannot deny himself, can he? Absolutely not. And so he delivers us uh, from a far greater foe, and we have true freedom. We're able to, to live in the freedom of the gospel. We're not worried about it coming up behind us any longer because our foe has been completely and totally conquered. Sin has no hold, no snare on us any longer. And one of the beautiful things about this is we are then able to live with feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. You see, I find that many Christians today, and I've mentioned this a couple of times in here, I'm sorry, I just keep coming up. Um, we, we live burdened by our sin. We live almost as if guilt is, is sneaking up behind us. How do you have guilt as a saint? Is the just God going to kill your sin in Christ and then still require it of you? By no means. And so then we're freed up. No, I don't, I don't pursue righteousness that I might show it to God that he might give me some reward instead. No, I rest in the, in the righteousness of Christ. And because of that, I'm freed up to actually do good work. Because if we're doing work to earn something of ourselves, it's not even good work. It's selfish. It's impossible to do good work to try to earn your salvation. It ruins good work in and of itself. And so what we have here is finally we have freedom because Christ is the means of our deliverance and we rest in him and now we're able to pursue a righteous lifestyle. We're able to enter in, as we'll see in just a minute, God's rest. You see, I want you to notice this. The first illustration that he uses is in regard to the Red Sea. Deliverance from those who desire to hold us captive. The second one is this. They pass through the river on foot. Both of them are referencing a party of the water. And they are. They're referencing the parting of the Red Sea. But then I, I love that God reminds his, his nation, Israel, as they cross into uh, the promised land. The same way I brought you out is the way I'm bringing you in. I brought you out of Egypt by my power, by my might. And I'm going to bring you into the promised land by my power and my might. And we enter into his rest. And that, that's what Canaan's all about. It's about this place of rest. And although they come in and they have to conquer, they have to rid absolutely uh, the whole land of the Canaanites, even though they fail to do that, God still gives them rest in the land. And one of the beautiful things is, as the Christian, we do not enter into a, to a rest that needs to be conquered. We enter into a rest that has already been accomplished for us. There's no conquering for us to do because Christ accomplished it all. And what I want you to, want you to see in this is this is the idea of righteousness credited to your account even further displayed. As you enter in, it's not you trying to clear out the land. It's you simply coming in and resting and enjoying the things that Christ has purchased for you. And I love the, uh, the acrostic. I'm not digging into these kind of things, but somebody just did this perfect. Grace, God's riches in Christ's success. Love it. We enter into the promised land and enjoy all the riches uh, of heaven. And I love what uh, Ephesians 1 says. Um, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
That's what it means to enter into his rest. And as the Israelites went into the promised land, they met, they were met with war. They were met with having to go in to conquer all these that are, that are holding things captive from them that they know God has given them. But with a saint, it's not so. Now I want to show you two major things of rest here. Number one is the rest for the Christian here. And I want you to say that I, I really need this to be understood. Eternal life is not something you look forward to. You're in it. And I, I mean, really, understand this. If we have a proper understanding of death, the separation, body from soul, or soul from God, a proper understanding of that, and the proper understanding of the gospel means that your soul will absolutely never, ever be separated from Christ. It is an impossibility. You look at Romans chapter 8, what can separate us from the love of God? He lists an exhaustive list. Nothing can. You see, you enter into his rest here. And if more believers understood that, if more believers would stop and, and say, what kind of peace and joy I have in Christ as I'm here on the earth, but even though everything's going crazy around me, whether it be politics or difficulties in your household, or whether it be finances or whatever, whatever comes, you have rest because you have Christ, and that's absolutely all you need. He gives himself to you fully and freely. You're not waiting for some future installment. You have that here and now. Yes, we look forward to being free from the presence of sin. We look forward to that eternal place of not having to deal with any strife, any difficulty that comes from other people's sin or even our own flesh. But while we're here on the earth, we get to rest in Christ. And friends, if we do that, I'm just, just full disclosure, people are going to wonder about you. They're going to wonder about you. In our political climate, is everybody else is freaking out, you're resting comfortably because all is well. Be at peace, Jesus is king. You rest there, and there's freedom in that. And it, and it, and I, and it is enticing, even, even to the lost. Even if they never place their faith in Christ, there's still something so dynamically different, it begs the question, though they may, as Romans 1 says, suppress the truth by their unrighteousness, they have to suppress the truth because it's clearly displayed in the same life. And so we have rest here, but secondly, we have a blessed rest to come. One of the number one difficulties in the Christian life is often looking forward. I mean, we, we, we should be paying attention to what's happening here on the earth. We should be invested. We should be hopefully pouring into other people's lives, seeing the gospel transform individuals, training them to do the work of the ministry, watching that. It's such a blessing to do that. But the saint must always be looking forward. He must always be looking forward. Somebody asked John MacArthur one time, um, is, it possibly, is it possible to be too kingdom-focused? And I remember his response was literally just a laugh. Um, he just was, I mean, he was like, this is a stupid question, move on. Um, and the answer is no. It is absolutely impossible for us to be too kingdom-focused. The more focused we are on what's to come, the more, um, the more passionate we will be in our ministry here. Frankly, the more rest we will have here, all the while laboring passionately for the gospel, because we are not living for some temporary pleasure or some temporary world. Instead, we are looking forward to what is eternal. We are looking forward to that promised inheritance we see in 1 Peter. Uh, inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And friends, if we're laboring for something like that, we'll labor hard. Right? See, far too often our prize, we, 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 don't, we don't cherish it, we don't look forward to it enough. Um, I didn't put this with death, but I'm going to tell the story anyway. Um, one, of the, one of the most enticing things my wife ever said to me um, this was like our second date. I had never met a woman like this. Um, 
she, uh, we're, we're, we're sitting, I guess at Greta Lake, I, I think, and uh, we're just talking, and she says to me, um, she says, I'm not going to give you my heart. You have to earn it. Oh, my goodness. It was like, game on. And uh, that's really, genuinely how I felt. And throughout our entire dating relationship, I was looking for that prize. I mean, genuinely. And I mean, I, there were things I did in that dating relationship that I'd never did anywhere else. I mean, I, this is a heart that, 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 was, that was valuable. It wasn't given away freely. No, this was something that was, that was something for me to aim at and to cherish and to, and to run passionately toward. So I, as I was looking forward to that prize, I mean, it changed the way that I lived while I was trying to get there. And at the exact same time in the Christian life, if we look forward to that great prize, it will alter the way that we live. As we look forward to our rest, it will increase our labor. It will, without question. We're, we're foolish if we think otherwise. The reward, if we truly long for it, it will dynamically change the way that we live. And as the Israelites are looking forward to the promised land, they, you can even imagine them standing on the Jordan watching it rise. I mean, just the, the foolishness of this, even. And I love so many things we find in Scripture. We can call them foolish, because if we look at them like, these things are impossible. And why would God do it this way? It's a, it's a river. Like, even if it's at its mass, I mean, there, there are other ways around that. He says, I'm going to demonstrate to every single individual in the land that uh, the God of the Israelites is coming, and I'm going to raise a sea so they can see it, to raise a river so they can see it. It's this grand proclamation as the Israelites look over into that promised land, longing begins in their heart. And they look to the rest and they say, that's where we're going. That land flowing with milk and honey. Though there be giants there, they will fall by the sword. Um, such a sweet thing to consider. And so when we see the psalmist say, come and see. Um, he's inviting them to come and see the redemption of the God of Israel. And we, as uh, saints today, we say, come and see what Christ has accomplished for the saints. And we invite them to come look at these things. They are beautiful and they are to be longed for. Secondly, we see this. Um, I love this section. Okay, good. Um, Let the sound of praise be heard. You find this in verse 8. Bless our God, O peoples, let the sound of his praise be heard. That's the proclamation. That's what we're trying to get to. We're trying to get to a place where the people are blessing blessing our God, O people, let the sound of his praise be heard. He's worthy of this. Now I want you to notice a couple of things. Verse 9. Who has kept our souls among the living? So first, uh, we see for he keeps his people. The reason we want to hear the praise of all the people is because he keeps his people. Now, this is one of the most incredible truths that we can find in uh, all of Scripture. That means that when you're in Christ, and I'm going to say this probably in a little bit of an altered way, we hear things said, once saved, always saved. Those things are true, but I prefer if saved, always saved. I think it's a little bit more accurate. And what I mean by that is this. If you are actually in Christ... That means that you will forever be in Christ. Uh, I, I, one, of the, one of the best illustrations for this is like Noah was in the ark, so are you in Christ. You might be able to fall down a couple times, but you're not falling out. Um, once that door is shut, you are secure. And it's such, a, it's such a blessed truth that God keeps our soul among the living. He preserves us. Now, there are many uh, denominations even. I, anyway, I'm going to withhold my comment. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not. There are many denominations that deny this truth. And I'm going to be honest with you. If you deny this truth, you have no hope. You have no hope because you're going to strike out time and time again. And the rest that we just spoke of, it's not there. There is no rest for you. You live in a constant state of trying to earn the favor of God, which, first of all, demeans the cross of Christ and makes it not effective at all. And secondly, how do you live in that? And the, and the, and the doctrines of the Scripture, are, are, are they're real, they're true, but they also are applicable to the human life. And friends, if, if God does not preserve you, you will not be kept. It's a reality. 
but he does. We see this so, so clearly. So turn your Bibles to John, because I can't leave this one alone. Um, John chapter 6, 38 through 40. I love this text. It was so good. Um, says this. Let me give you a second. John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says. Okay. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So according to this text, will Jesus lose anything that the Father has given him? No. It is an impossibility. We serve the omnipotent God. That means he is all-powerful. That means that when he says he's going to do something, he has the absolute authority to do it. Nothing can change that. And so when we see this language, I'm going to uh, verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me to the will of God that cannot be thwarted, as Psalm 20 would say, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. That means all that are given by the Father will be secured until what? Notice this. He is raised up on the last day. You are safe and secure in Christ. If you are in Christ, you rest very comfortably because on that last day, you will indeed be raised. It's not an if, it's not a perhaps, it's not, um, I guess maybe I'll get there, and it's not based on your works, it's based on His sovereign hand keeping you where you are. Um, and that is the reason we have great risk. But I have to give you another text because it's good. John 10. I am the good shepherd. Um, John 10, in particularly, verse 27 through 30, says this. There go. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. My hand. I and the Father are one. I... Forgive me, this is a 27-year-old. But this is like the this good saint, this good good shepherd passage, and he's essentially saying, it doesn't matter who comes, it doesn't matter who tries, you're kept by me. What authority, what power can can come and try to snatch you out? It's laughable. And I think about all the great persecutions that will take place in um in the days of the early church, as, as, as Nero is lighting people on fire, as, uh, as saints are being torn apart by lines, and it doesn't matter how powerful the emperor may think he is, he has absolutely no authority to reach into the hand of God and snatch saints from him. He will not allow it. Secondly, you as a saint cannot flee from that great hand. No. It doesn't matter how you fail. It doesn't matter how uh, difficult um, trials and tribulation come. He keeps you. He keeps you. And, and the reason this is so important is because if we don't understand this truth, we, we'll, live, we'll live lives thinking that God's sitting there ready to like smite us for any sin that we may have. He's looking forward to removing us from fellowship. But that's not the case at all. If you've been purchased by the blood of Christ, that means that you are an adopted son or daughter. That means that you receive all the inheritance that Christ has purchased for you. And he longs to give you good and perfect gifts. And one of those is not uncertainty. He gives you security. My grandfather um, is, I'll just bring you the background information. Um, anyway, I was sharing the gospel with him, and um, he was pretty much on his deathbed. He's had like six. He's still alive. 
Um, and and as, I, as I'm sharing with him, he, he looks at me, we just can't be sure. And I said, no, I am most certain. I'm certain that Christ has purchased me, which means I'm certain that he will keep me. And friends, no world religion has that. Not a one. That's the beauty of the gospel of Christ. We don't pick this one because we like it better. We pick this one because it's true, because God has revealed himself to us. What beautiful truth it is that the one whom he rescues, he will make sure will be raised in the last day, and he will keep you by that good and sovereign hand, that no soul, no entity, no force, whether present or uh, or whether created or uncreated, can ever snatch you from it. You are safe and secure. It's crucial that we understand that. To be able to live the Christian life to its fullest. Secondly, notice this. The God who keeps you will also test you. This is where we get a little uncomfortable. Um, but look at this. I mean, so we say, who has kept our soul among the living? So who is it that keeps you? God keeps you. All right? Simple language. Right? <laughs> but notice this. For you, O oh God, have tested us. Now, understand, we, we, we consider, like, we understand that God tests his saints. We know that he pays us attention, that even the book of Job, I love the book of Job, you see God even point out Job and say, hey, check out this guy. There's none like him in all the earth. And he points him out. He's like, I want you to pay attention. I want you to test him. Try him. And, and look at the language here, because he doesn't even leave it just this testing. Instead, he really places real parameters on it. You have tried us as silver is tried. How is silver tried? Fire. Really? What a joy. Um, fire. I mean, he's going to test us through fire, through difficulties, through trials and tribulations. This is what you're bringing to me, and, and this is supposed to be encouraging to me, and it actually is supposed to be encouraging to you for multiple reasons, primarily because as a believer, the sole aim of your life, the pinnacle of sanctification is that your desires, your motives are changed to that which will glorify Christ most. That's really the heartbeat of the Christian. It's all glory be to Christ. I want to see him exalted and praised. And if that means that I go through times of tribulation, that I might be more conformed to his image, or that I might bring him some glory and suffering well here on the earth, and so be it. I mean, so we say, Lord, try me. Lord, try me even as you try silver. You brought us into the net, into the snare, into captivity. And, and even then we have to pause and consider that, that as he's writing this, he's just been meditating on Captivity. He's just been meditating on the deliverance from the Red Sea. And I want you to pause and consider. If Israel would have never gone into slavery, would God have demonstrated his excellent power and authority over all the gods of Israel, all the gods of Egypt? Would he have shown them the parting of the Red Sea? Would he have been able to demonstrate his power and authority in that way? And the answer is no. So why then did he allow Israel to go into slavery? In order that he might be glorified. Now we can ask the same question of a blind man in the New Testament. Who sinned this man or his parents? We always, we always, we always want to relate any difficulty, any trial, or any tribulation to sin. Now, we understand that we live in a fallen world, so we live in that context. But at the exact same time, Jesus quickly responds, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He's born this way that the glory of God might be displayed in his life. And you can almost imagine the weight that the apostles felt. Like, this is, so, the primary motive of absolutely everything is the glory of God. The answers are resounding yes. Now the reason that gives comfort and gives joy to the believer is that's our primary aim anyway. If we truly be in Christ and we're being sanctified, then our primary aim is always all glory be to Christ. And if that be the case, we look at suffering and we say, well, we're here, we're living in this 
sinful world where suffering is present, so I'm going to suffer well for the glory of God. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is not suffering, it's how we suffer. And the Christian should always be marked by suffering well, whether it be to the point of death, or whether it be but a brief period of time. To be real honest, it's a brief period of time, whether it be moments or whether it be the entirety of your life. For the sufferings here are not worthy to be compared to the future glory. And so we go through times of tribulation. He brings us through those. But you also see this. He preserves us through trials. Uh, I mean, this, is, this is the beauty of it. Notice this. Um, in verse 10, we'll look at 10, 11, 12. For you, O God, have tested us. You've tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. I mean, this is difficult stuff. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out. I wish I close attention to this. Can you imagine silversmiths that they're looking at this crucible, they're burning out all the impurity? How careful do you think they were to make sure they got every ounce of silver out? I mean, it was their livelihood, right? They're going to get most of it, but they're men. They're not going to get it all. There's value. They're, they're really going to wrestle hard to get it all out at the exact same time. They're limited by, um, by imperfect skill, and even then, uh, not, the, not necessarily the right amount of power or tools to do it. Guys, in the exact same way, God values his saints. And if you go through trials and tribulations, he's not limited by, by fallen man's hands. He's not limited by lack of skill or lack of knowledge or lack of power. Any difficulty you go through, you will not be abandoned, and he will make sure you come out on the other side. Whether that be here, that you come out on the other side of this trial or tribulation, whether that be you still breathing here on the earth, or whether it be you finally enter into that grand rest that is your, your, um, your forever home, being able to dwell eternally with the Father, Son, and Spirit. What a blessing that would be. I, I love the language of Spurgeon. I'm, I think he said this, um, that, that death is simply the six-foot door. Um, that by when we lay down in death, that we simply find ourselves entering into a a paradise with our God. And so uh, he is faithful to bring us out. He preserves us. It's so crucial that we understand this beautiful truth that that God is not going to abandon any of his saints, that he's going to make sure they make it through these various trials and tribulations, that the goal of that is to bring them to a place of deeper sanctification, or even if it be in death, reminded of of the verse that says, precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. Come home. And so, lastly, we see this. He blesses his people. He blesses his people. John 10.10, 10, that great verse that uh, hundreds of people have taken out of context. Um, I mean, it's true. Uh, for I have come to give you life, and life more abundantly. Now, we have to be careful because we don't want to overcorrect. Um, very, very clearly, we understand that this does not necessarily mean that you're going to live healthy, wealthy, and wise here on the earth, but it does mean that you will truly live an abundant life. We have to just really clarify what abundance means. Abundance means that we're able to live in the presence of our God and really live a life that was meant to be lived here on the earth, a life that is meant to glorify God in everything that we do. That's the abundant Christian life. And it may be that you may live it in absolute poverty. You may live it in the midst of great suffering. But if the heartbeat of your life is all glory be to Christ, and you look at these difficult situations and you say, oh, what a blessing I had that I was able to have life and life abundantly, that I was able to bring glory to Christ through my good times and my bad. And so he blesses his people. Psalm 23 is perhaps the other one. This is one of the sweetest psalms, and many people, uh, it's one of those psalms that's really recited both by saint and sinner alike, even. But it says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Now notice this last phrase, for his name's sake. He blesses his people for his name's sake. And when I pause to consider the jealousy of God, the primary motivation of everything he says for his name's sake, for his glory, for his renown, and every blessing I receive, I, I, I understand that it is based upon the merits of Christ that I'm receiving. That it's based upon the fact that my responsibility, of any gift, of any good and perfect gift that I am given, is to bring glory to Christ and fame and make his name known among the nations, whether it be here or across the globe. That any blessing that we receive is based on the merits of Christ and ultimately uh, the purpose is to bring glory and fame to him. It's always for his name's sake. So when we see this, this, uh, this, for this introduction of this uh, passage, let the sound of praise be heard. He's saying, I want you to pause and consider the difficulties in your life. Now, I want you to notice this. Let your praise be heard in the midst of difficult times. This is what it means to suffer well. This is what it means to suffer well. When difficulties come, we don't grow silent. We don't grow silent, and instead we, we all the more praise. And imagine as you are going through cancer, or whether you've watched your dearly loved spouse, child, whatever it may be, pass away, and yet still there is this Sound of praise to be heard. What is that? What does the world do with that? They're reminded of great truths. First, they're reminded that the saint looks forward. And they're also reminded, whether they would admit it or not, that the human life is wrapped up in one thing and one thing alone. How it deals with Christ. And for the saint, we praise him in the midst of difficult circumstances. And as we do that, we watch as the lost world is baffled. Baffled what peace you have. And we look even to 1 Peter and it reminds us to always be ready to give an answer to the hope that we have. We have to live lives in front of people that demand and ask questions. And so in the midst of difficult circumstances, we hear let the sound of praise be heard. Lastly, notice in verse 16. Come and hear. It's like, what's our, what's our response to this? I mean, we've seen God deliver his people and give us rest in him. He's seen us preserve us and keep us. We've seen him um, uh, take us through trials and tribulations, but ultimately see him bring abundance. We see that in particular in verse 12. It says, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. What then are we to do? How are we to respond? Um, and so immediately our response is come and hear. Come in here. We've seen all the things that God has done. We want you to sing His praises. But lastly, we want you to come in here. We want you to understand. We want you to know about this God. And so in particular, what it's speaking of is His salvation that He brings. So notice in verse 16, Come in here, all you through the Lord, and I will tell you what He has done for my soul. A saved soul is not silent. I'm sorry. I just refuse to buy that lie. A saved soul is never silent. Um, I wrote on... Uh, uh, Mercy Hill's page that on our on our missions on our missions uh, uh, value that a, that a, that, a, that the the goal of missions to see a new soul saved and singing loudly the praises of Jesus. I mean th- that's the purpose of missions. That's the purpose of of even salvation. We might be quickly praising the God who has delivered us and rescued us. And so we're fools to say that we have been rescued and we are not saying come and see what He has done for me. It's foolishness. We're we're not silent about any other good and perfect thing that we have in our life. We tell people more about our favorite restaurants than we do about Jesus. What? 
cow. But if, if we've really inherited this, we've been given this salvation, notice that it's personal here, for my soul, it's been applied to me. I've been the one who's dealt with this. It's Christ who's rescued me. How can we possibly be silent? How can we be? So we see that his salvation is personal. personal. Notice, uh, notice this last part here. I love this text. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And that's uncomfortable, right? Um, if I would have cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Um, I, so there are a couple of ways that the Lord hears prayer. First of all, his omniscience. He is absolutely aware of every prayer that ever goes out based upon his perfect knowledge. But notice uh, the language here. It says uh, in verse 19, he has attended the voice of my prayer. That there is a unique listening and unique ear given to the saint, those who do not cherish iniquity in, the, in their heart. But I want you to notice this. For some reason, the human heart has changed dramatically in this text. Because what we know from Scripture, Matthew 15 in particular, argues that all sorts of evil flows out of the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart of all things is desperately wicked. Who can know it? How then do we have a heart here that says, I had not cherished iniquity in my heart? How does this happen? It happens only through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Only through the Holy Spirit diving into a broken Pagan heart and changing it. It's the operation of the Holy Spirit in sanctification, salvation. He regenerates the human heart that has fallen, that is corrupted by sin in every facet. There's absolutely no area exempt in the human heart of sin. It is everywhere. Yet here we have a text that says, I have not cherished iniquity in my heart. We know that it's been changed. And by the Holy Spirit of God, this has happened in the psalmist's life and in our lives. Friends, just hold with me for a minute and consider. Who you are before you were in Christ. You're telling me that you have a heart that cherished iniquity? It's like we pretend like we didn't enjoy the sin we did before we were saved. We did. Loved it. Half the time we're still clinging to it after we've been saved. But by God's grace, He does a great work in the human heart that causes us to hate what we once loved and love what we once rejected. And by God's grace, we have a heart now that doesn't cling to iniquity, that he has freed its grasp, its bondage from us, and we're able to pray, to seek after the Lord, and he actually attends our prayers. This is great news. The God of creation, the one who created everything, ex nihilo, from nothing. We don't even have time to imagine or consider what that means. If there was no materials that he used except for his own power and authority, he called things that didn't exist to exist. Try that. We can't. It is the true demonstration of power and authority to look at nothing and say, come everything. And that's the God who gives ear to us. He attends our prayers. He's paying close attention as he does to a son or daughter. Lastly, let's notice this. He is faithful in steadfast love. Notice verse 20. Blessed be God, because he has not rejoiced, rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Nor can he. Nor can he. How can God, who has purchased you by the blood of Christ, brought you into his family by adoption, he has worked in your life, he's brought you through trials and tribulations, he's preserved you in all of them, do you think that randomly he will decide that I don't love you anymore? The answer is no. He will never, ever remove his steadfast love from you because it's bought in the precious blood of Christ and he will not reject that perfect sacrifice. Every ounce of affection that God has for us is the affection that he has lavished on the Son, and that is now attributed to our account. 
He loves us as he loves Christ. And I'm going to confess to you that that sounds like absolute foolishness, doesn't it? I mean, as I come to those truths, I have to fight against them. These things are far too wonderful to me. And I'm reminded that the Lord says, my ways are higher than your ways. And friends, this is the beauty that we find as we begin to stop and recall the works of God, not only in Israel's life, but in the saints' life. And I'm convinced that this psalm is a perfect picture, picture of the Christian life. I mean, step by step we see it. And by God's grace, we find ourselves at the bottom, resting very comfortably, that he will never remove his steadfast love from us. So then we go back to the top. What then is our response? So you notice I skipped one little passage. I want to come back to that real quickly in verse 13, 14, and 15. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fatted animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Look at the man's response. It's obedience. It's obedience. The mark of the Christian is not intellectual agreement with Christianity. It's not. It's obedience to Christ. It's obedience to all that he's commanded of us. We have far too many that run around and presume that they understand and agree with the basic tenets of the Christian faith. It is not equal salvation. Submitting to Christ as Lord equals salvation. Only Christ is Lord. If he is not Lord, that he is not Savior. You see the psalmist say, because of all the things that God's done, because he's delivered, he's allowed me to enter rest, because he brought me through trials and tribulations because he keeps me. He makes sure that I persevere, um, that I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be obedient to the commands that he's given me. Lastly, or the last two we see this. Notice in um, verse 16 again. Come and hear all you who fear the Lord. There's an immediate response to tell of the good news. Friend, the saint speaks. He does. She does. He proclaims the goodness of God. He proclaims the, the, the salvation he has provided. Otherwise, the I fear that we are most in danger of being a false convert. Lastly, notice this, and this is where we've kind of been trekking through the whole time. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. In light of what He's done, how can we not sing? How can we not sing? How can we not praise? And and this may seem like a, a random point to come to, but I need you to understand that the saint is meant to be one who sings ever constantly the praises of Christ. We can't be these people who do not stop and admire the work of God. And when we do admire His work, we will be quick to sing His praise. I mean, I I find it, you know, I mentioned even, that there's something incredibly unique and powerful about hearing a group of men sing the praises of God. Not that there's anything wrong with women singing either. But it's just, that there's something unique about it. And even, and even then, I can, I can come into services on a Sunday morning. This is any church. And I watch men mouth closed. What does that mean? Is it because I don't like to sing, though? Do they want to call? Maybe they haven't been impacted by the beauty of the gospel. Maybe they haven't stopped and meditated on the good work that God has done for them. Maybe... They really allow it to become something that they hear, but they don't perceive. 
And I'm not speaking of just men. There are plenty of women who come in and love to sing. They don't sing the praises of Christ. They sing because they like their voice or because they just enjoy singing. It's meant to be joyful. And friends, the Christian soul sings loudly the praises of Jesus. There's no silence. There's no going through the motions. Instead, they find themselves refusing to be silent. They must sing. And friends, one of the joys is that we see all the way into eternity. This will be a grand occupation for the saints. We get the privilege of seeing where my mouth will be stopped in the pulpit. You won't need it any longer. The same wall is 